Hello, and welcome to the American Scientist Podcast. I'm Robert Frederick. In this episode, we'll hear about using computing to advance toxicology, which could reduce dependence on animal testing. Chemicals are like people. They're innocent until proven guilty. And the burden of proof lies on the shoulders of the regulatory agencies rather than on the shoulders of the chemical industry. That's Dr. Nicole Kleinstreuer, Deputy Director of the U.S. National Toxicology Program Interagency Center for the Evaluation of Alternative Toxicological Methods. I spoke with her at a talk she gave at Sigma's Eye, the Scientific Research Society, which publishes American Scientist magazine. You'll hear next the interview and then further questions from the audience after Dr. Kleinstroyer's talk. I asked her first about how the toxicity of chemicals are currently tested. So the current paradigm for chemical toxicity testing really relies heavily on animal testing. So you feed or you inject rats or mice or rabbits with chemicals, and then you look for apical toxicity endpoints. So things like death, at what concentration of a chemical do 50% of the rats die, or things like adverse prenatal outcomes where the, um, the feed a pregnant a dam, some chemical, and then the the rat pups have things like limb defects or are born dead, things like that. Without such sorts of testing, these chemicals are allowed on the market or not? So the way I like to think of it is that chemicals currently in, in under TOSCA, so TOSCA is the Toxic Substances Control Act that provides the current regulatory statute for chemical testing in the U.S., under TOSCA, chemicals are like people. They're innocent until proven guilty. And the burden of proof lies on the shoulders of the regulatory agencies rather than on the shoulders of the chemical industry. And there are certainly exceptions to that. Food use pesticides, for example, have a very stringent testing battery called the six-pack, where they have to be tested for acute toxicity and for skin allergic reactions and for things like that and for developmental toxicity. But for the vast majority of chemicals that are not food use pesticides, there are no real testing requirements. So what is computational toxicology and how would that help? So computational toxicology is a new approach that's really making good use of the extreme advances in computational power and mathematics and scientific technology that we've witnessed over the last several decades, where we have the ability to actually test chemicals and look for their effects against hundreds, if not thousands, of different targets on on a genetic level, a molecular level, on a cellular level, on an organ level, even on a small organism level. And then you have all of these different data streams that are giving you information about all of these different cellular or molecular signaling pathways. And so you have to find a way to bring all of that information together and make sense of it. And that's where computational toxicology comes in. So we build computer models that bring all of our biological and scientific knowledge to bear on the data that we're trying to integrate and use that to make predictions about chemical effects. So you essentially are building a model of a biological system and then see if the chemical breaks that system. Is that it? 
Basically, right. But computational toxicology, just like traditional toxicology, it's not to say that something's safe. It's just to say that it's not something we think will cause a toxic effect, right? So something that's really important to consider that most people forget is that nothing is safe. Safe is, it's such a loaded word, and it's impossible, really, to say that any chemical is truly safe. Water is not safe. You know, I'm sure everybody's heard these freak news stories about, you know, the mom, it was, it was really tragic. She tried to win a radio contest by drinking as much water as possible and she died because of it. Because even water at high enough concentrations in your body can produce toxicity. So there's this old saying, uh, Paracelsus, it's one of the paradigms of toxicology. The dose makes the poison. And that's really critical. Understanding the dose of the chemical, the actual exposure to the chemical, and whether or not at relevant concentrations, a chemical might be perturbing biological pathways that would cause toxicity. Or is this chemical you know, not very active and we're exposed to it at very low concentrations. And yes, if you test it high enough, you might see some biological activity or toxicity, but then you're in concentration ranges where, you know, you would have to eat an entire case of plastic water bottles to even begin to approach, you know, a a blood level that where you start to see bioactivity. And that's a facetious example, but it's just really, really, important to actually consider routes of exposure and, you know, exposure concentrations as the context within which we're framing toxicological evaluations. Now, you work for? The National Toxicology Program Interagency Center for the Evaluation of Alternative Toxicological Methods, or NICEDM. We are a national center that's housed within the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences, or NIEHS, here in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And we work with ICVAM, which is the Interagency Coordinating Committee on Validation of Alternative Methods. And we really try and look for alternatives to animal testing that are more scientifically sound, more mechanistically driven, and of course, solve all the ethical and logistical and resource conundrums that animal testing presents. And this is all a division or part of the federal government, is that right? Yes, that's right. So before the U.S. federal government got involved and invested in this kind of screening, before the Environmental Protection Agency, was it just something like, let the buyer beware? Well... Yes and no. The pharmaceutical industry has been doing this kind of screening for years and years and years. I mean, the concept of toxicogenomics really originated in the pharmaceutical industry. And so the drug development pipeline, they've been leveraging in-house, you know, structure-based screening tools, in vitro screening methods, predictive models for many, many years. And I think it was really borrowing from the pharmaceutical industry and realizing that we could start to apply some of those same technologies to actually generate data on the thousands of chemicals in the environment that are completely data poor. So other than the pharmaceutical industry and the companies that have to because of regulations around food, to what extent are chemical production companies 
investing or are interested in computational toxicology platforms. So we have a number of really fantastic industry partners that we count among our stakeholders. So companies like Dow, AgroSciences, BASF, Procter & Gamble, Pfizer, some of the cosmetics companies like L'Oreal. L'Oreal banned animal testing 20, 30 years ago. So they're one of the pioneers in, in that area. And so we have a lot of industry partners that are working very, very, in a very dedicated manner to try and apply these computational toxicology methods and help develop their own in-house strategies for computational toxicology screening and really applying them in a green chemistry perspective. So green chemistry is this concept of trying to incorporate safety and sustainability and life cycle analysis in the actual design of the compound or the design of the product. So you're trying to both maximize efficacy while minimizing toxicity from the ground up. And there are a number of companies that are really embracing this approach. How about the results? Are the results generally embraced of computational toxicology screenings? Well, as with every revolution, there's controversy on both sides, right? So one major criticism that we often face is that uh, in vitro systems are not metabolically competent in the same way that whole animal systems are. So, you know, if a compound gets metabolized into byproducts that may potentially be more toxic than the parent compound, but you're testing it in a system that doesn't express the correct enzymes to break it down, then you might miss that. So I have a lot of hope in things like microfluidic systems, organs on a chip, humans on a chip, that are actually leveraging these new miniaturized technologies where you can have like a little miniature liver and a little miniature lung and a little miniature kidney and a miniature brain and they're all talking to each other through a microfluidic system and then you actually have functional metabolic capacity where those chemicals can be broken down into their constituents and actually tested in a way that's more representative of sort of the whole animal um, scenario. So that's the hope for the future. What about the present? How are these results currently being treated by governments, for example? Well, you know, the endocrine disruptor screening program is probably the best example currently of where these types of approaches are actually being put into regulatory use. But it's very important to highlight the fact that even though the CompTOX tools and the ER pathway model are replacing current animal tests, they're not doing away with all animal testing. So tier one EDSP testing is just for screening. It's does this chemical have the potential to interact with this pathway? And for the purposes of prioritization and screening, these tools are extremely fit for purpose. They're very, very effective. They give us data on thousands of chemicals where we didn't have any data. And with the validation, they're extremely predictive of the results in the animal test. Now, moving into tier two, that's where you actually look multi-generational tests in animals where you look for much more complex endpoints like effects on reproduction. And so I think we're a long way off from fully replacing you know, all of those animal tests. But I think 
we're, you know, really effectively using high throughput screening and CompTOX tools right now for prioritizing and screening the thousands of chemicals that are in the environment right now. So pros and cons, trade-offs then, it sounds like there are limitations that will never be replaced uh, entirely by... Well, I think that that's where the promise of some of the virtual embryo systems and the morphogenetic and complex computational models really come in. And that's where, you know, using those types of more complex computational models to contextualize the high throughput screening results can be extraordinarily powerful. And I think moving forward, there are, I think, ways to address all of the current shortcomings of computational toxicology. And in the distant-ish future, you know, ultimately come to full replacement. So you do think then that there won't always be a need for some sort of animal testing, that, that at some point we'll have enough data and know enough about what makes something toxic that we'll be able to completely eliminate all animal testing. Personally, I hope so. I, I can't say that for sure, and I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime or not, but I certainly hope so. And I think taking it in a stepwise fashion, we are really accomplishing a lot. And there's been a lot of really exciting success stories focused on individual issues, so to speak. And in some cases, the truth of the matter is ultimately the computational models that incorporate human cell-based targets and human molecular targets actually are better than the animal tests. It's not even just a question of are they adequate, are they as good. The skin sensitization case is a, is a really good example. The, the mouse really only predicts the human response about 80% of the time. It turns out if you integrate data from human cell-based systems, human you know predictions based on structure, you actually can predict the human response with a much higher degree of accuracy than the mouse predicts the human. And so I think that should be our goal. Our goal should be the most effective and scientifically driven protection of human health and the environment that we can achieve. Nicole Kleinstroyer, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. The first question after Dr. Kleinstroyer's talk came from Ernie Hood. You talked about the, the breakthrough last year with EPA accepting the computational methods. What is the outlook for the other regulators? Okay, thank you, Ernie. Um, that's a great question. So, Currently, um, there's a congressional mandate for EPA to test for endocrine disruption. And so in that particular field, that's where, you know, that's where the testing burden lies on the industry. And so EPA is one of the most, I would, no, I would, I would say unequivocally, the most forward-looking regulatory agency when it comes to adopting these new approaches and computational toxicology methods. And part of that is because that they've, in, they've invested so much into, they've invested so much time and resources into the ToxCast program through their Office of Research and Development. And their scientists have done a tremendous job at both producing and analyzing and applying this data. And we really just, we came in on the validation side to, to help provide an external validation of the work that they had done. Um, so I think in terms of EPA will continue to lead the charge, specifically in the endocrine disruptor screening program with the adoption of the androgen receptor pathway model and using um, the, the current science to build things like a serotogenesis model and a thyroid disruption model, although those are certainly farther off. 
in terms of other areas of um, testing requirements where these methods are potentially being used, as I mentioned with skin sensitization, that's a, that's you know, a big requirement, um, not only for cosmetics, but for pesticides and for any chemical that has the potential to come into contact with skin. And I'm very, very optimistic about getting global harmonization and acceptance at, at least a bare minimum of, of defining performance criteria that any new test method will have to meet to be able to replace the animal test. And so and we've gotten, you know, excellent feedback from FDA, from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. They're very, very engaged in that work. Um, from uh, DOT, from OSHA, you know, that all of the agencies are certainly very, very committed towards working down a path towards, you know, animal reduction, refinement, and replacement. Um, I, hope, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I'm Hannah Andrews. I do wonder, is there follow-through, given the information, so that chemicals that are in current use or in industry or agriculture or water sanitation could be withdrawn if, if your research shows that they are fundamentally disruptive to embryonic development. Thank you, Hannah. Um, I can't necessarily speak to um, that question in terms of embryonic development because that work is still, you know, very much in the mechanistic research stages and hasn't necessarily been applied to risk assessment. But I can give you the example of the EDSP where there were 67 chemicals on the first list of compounds that the EPA <coughs> issued test orders for, for determining their potential to interact with endocrine system. And out of those 67 chemicals, 15 were voluntarily withdrawn by by the chemical companies because they had demonstrated potential to be endocrine disruptors. So that is happening, absolutely. But it certainly requires um, a high degree of scientific confidence in your prediction models to, do, to, to justify withdrawing a chemical from the market that might be you know, functionally very beneficial. Judd Bowman. Interested in the EPA data? Like It sounds like they're putting a lot of public data on the web. Is there an interface that, that anyone could query that we would be able to see, like for the, the cosmetics or the, the food we eat or even those plastic water bottles, if they have any of these toxicast chemicals, like the highest risk ones or even the ones that you suspect might have some kind of you know, endocrine, endocrine disruption or other effect on us, so that like people that are buying their products were able to see if these things are out there. Yes, so there are resources that the EPA has put out there called the Chemical Safety for Sustainability Dashboards, where you can go, but you really have to have a really high degree of familiarity with what you're looking at to even understand what it is that you're seeing in terms of the assay targets and the, right. And so, um, but they are really working, they're working very, very hard on something called Rapid Talks, which is going to be a more user-friendly graphical user interface where somebody can go and ask that same question. And they, they need that for their risk assessors. So the Office of Research and Development supports, they do science that support the program offices up in DC where the regulators sit and they take into account all of the science that ORD has done and they make regulatory risk assessment-based decisions. And they want to use all of this information in their risk assessment decisions. And so they are developing 
developing um, interfaces where people can come and, and run exactly those sorts of queries. Also, at the NIEHS, with the National Toxicology Program, we're doing the same thing, because um, we have a lot of data in-house that's very complementary to the EPA's data, not only from the Tox21 program, but also from voluntary submissions to NICEDM um, from industry, from academic groups, from test method developers. And so we are curating all of that data and putting it into a relational database format, and we have plans by the end of the year to have that be outward facing. And so people will be able to come to our website. They'll be able to look and see, okay, this is the chemical that I'm concerned about. Show me all the data that the National Toxicology Program has in-house on this chemical. Or this is the toxicity endpoint I'm concerned about. Show me, show me all the chemicals that have activity against that particular endpoint. And so a lot of those projects are you know, under very heavy development right now and, and should be coming to prime time within the next year or so. A final question came from Mike Lusanke and concerned how nanotechnology was affecting these computational models. I mean, even benign chemistry causing particle size causing problems. Thanks, Mike. Um, that's a really fantastic question, and I confess that you know I am absolutely not in the nano field, and there are people that are a lot smarter than me that are, are really entirely focused on nano. I do know that um, within the Tox21 program, there was a subset of um, nanoparticle testing that was done, and, I, and it, it was really a subset because it requires so much extra work in the characterization of the nanomaterials, in making sure that they're adequately dispersed in the solution that they're being tested in and they're not just clumping together and hiding from the cells, you know, and it's, there's a lot of real interesting challenges. Um, but there's also some really, really great work going on in the computational fluid dynamics field in modeling um, nanoparticle deposition. Um, so I'm a little biased, but there's this amazing researcher at NC State University named Dr. Clement Kleinstroyer probably a relation, <laughs> since there's only four of us in the whole country. He's my father. And um, he he does amazing CFD work um, where he has airway models, and based on the particle size and the particle geometry, specifically nanoparticles, they can look at deposition in the different reaches of the lungs, can do the same thing with vascular systems. And so I think that work holds a lot of promise for understanding nanoparticle toxicity and um, cellular transport mechanisms and how those are all you know, kind of interplay. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist Magazine. Thanks to Nicole Kleinstroyer of the National Toxicology Program Interagency Center for the Evaluation of Alternative Toxicology Methods for being on the show. I'm Robert Frederick. On behalf of American Scientist Magazine and our publisher, Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society, thanks for joining us.